Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 369th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we continue with part 24 of South with Scott by Edward Evans, and then we'll continue with part 13 of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. He held on tight, and somehow Crean and I wriggled off the bridge, sticking our crampons firmly into the ice and crawling up to where Lashley was. We all three held on to that alpine line, and in some extraordinary fashion got to the top of the ridge, where we anchored ourselves and prepared to haul up the sledge. As I said before, it weighed about 400 pounds, and to three exhausted men the strain which came upon us when we hauled the sledge off the bridge tested us to the limit of our strength. The wretched thing slipped sideways and capsized on the slope, nearly dragging us down into that icy chasm. But our combined efforts saved us, and once again the perils of the moment were forgotten as we got into our sledge harness and just started to make the best of our way to the depot. By now we were exhausted, rudely shaken, and our eyes were smarting with the glare and the glint of the sun's reflection from that awful maze of icefalls. I felt my heart would burst from the sustained effort of launching that sledge, which now seemed to weigh a ton. There seemed no way out of this confused mess of pressure ridges and crevasses. We were all out, and come what may, I had to change our tactics. Accordingly, I ordered a halt. No room could be found to pitch our tent, and I could not see any possibility of saving my party. We could stagger on no further with a dreadfully heavy sledge. The prospect was hopeless, and our food was nearly gone. Some rest must be obtained to give us strength for this absolute battle for life. The great strain of the day's efforts had thoroughly exhausted us, and it took me back to the last day of December blizzard, which caused the eventual loss of the polar party and the ruin of Captain Scott's so excellently laid plans. I remembered the poor ponies after their fourteen hours' march, their flanks heaving, their black eyes dull, shriveled and wasted. The poor beasts had stood with their legs stuck out in strange attitudes, mere wrecks of the beautiful little animals that we took away from New Zealand, and I could not help likening our condition to theirs on that painful day. The three of us sat on the sledge, hollow-eyed and gaunt-looking. We were done. Our throats were dry, and we could scarcely speak. There was no wind. The atmosphere was perfectly still, and the sun slowly crept towards the southern meridian, clear-cut in the still blue sky. It gave us all the sympathy it could, for it shed warm rays upon us as it silently moved on its way, like a great eye from heaven, looking but unable to help. We should have gone mad with another day like this, and there were times when we came perilously close to being insane. Something had to be done. I got up from the sledge, cast my harness adrift and said, I'm going to look for a way out. We can't go on. My companions at first persuaded me not to go, 
but I pointed out that we could not continue in our exhausted condition. If only we could find a camping place, and we could rest. Perhaps we should be able to make a final effort to get clear. I moved along a series of ice bridges, and the excitement gave me strength once more. I was surprised at myself for not being giddy when I walked along the narrow ice spines, but the crampons attached to my finisco were like cat's claws, and without the weight of the sledge I seemed to develop a panther-like tenacity, for I negotiated the dangerous parts with the utmost ease. After some twenty minutes hunting round, I came to a great ice hollow. Down into it I went, and up the other side. This hollow was free from crevasses, and when I got to the top of the ice mound opposite, I saw yet another hollow. Turning round, I gazed back towards where I had left our sledge. Two tiny disconsolate figures were silhouetted against the sunlight, my two companions on our great homeward march, one sitting, one standing, probably looking for my reappearance as I vanished and was sighted again from time to time. I felt a tremendous love for those two men that day. They had trusted me so implicitly and believed in my ability to win through. I turned northward again, stepped down into the next hollow and stopped. I was in an enormous depression but not a crevasse to be seen, for the sides of the depression met quite firmly at the bottom in smooth blue solid ice. In a flash, I called to mind the view of the icefall from the glacier on our outward journey with Captain Scott. I remembered the huge frozen waves and hoped with all my optimistic nature that this might be the end of the great disturbance. I stood still and surveyed the wonderful valley of ice, and then fell on my knees and prayed to God that a way out would be shown to me. Then I sprang to my feet and hurried on boldly. Clambering up the opposite slope of ice, I found a smooth round crest over which I ran into a similar valley beyond. Frozen waves here followed in succession, and hollow followed hollow, each less in magnitude than its forerunner. Suddenly I saw before me the smooth, shining bed of the glacier itself, and away to the northwest was the curious reddish rock under which the mid-glacier depot had been placed. My feelings hardly bear setting down. I was overcome with emotion. But my prayer was answered and we were saved. I had considerable difficulty in working back to the party amongst the labyrinth of ice bridges, but I fortunately found a patch of hard snow whereon my crampons had made their mark, and from here I easily traced my footmarks back, and was soon in company with my friends. They were truly relieved at my news. On consulting my watch I found that I'd been away one hour. It took us actually three times as long to work our sledge out into the smooth ice of the glacier. But this reached, we camped and made some tea before marching on to the depot, which lay but a few miles from us. We ate the last of our biscuits at this camp, and finished everything but tea and sugar. And then, new men, we struck our little camp, harnessed up and swept down over the smooth ice with scarcely an effort needed to move the sledge along. When we reached the depot, we had another meal, and slept through the night and well on into the next day. Consulting my old Antarctic diary, 
I see that the last sentence written on the 17th of January says, I had to keep my goggles off all day, as it was a matter of life or death with us, and snow blindness must be risked after a... A gap follows here, until the 29th of January. The next day I had an awful attack of snow blindness, but the way down the glacier was so easy that it did not matter. I forgot whether Lashley or Crean led then, but I marched alongside, keeping in touch with the trace by hitching the lanyard of my sundial onto it and holding this in my hand. I usually carried the sundial slung around my neck, so that it was easy to pick it up and to consult it. That day I was in awful pain, and although we had some dope for putting on our eyes when so smitten, I found that the greatest relief of all was obtained by bandaging my eyes with a poultice made of tea leaves, after use, quaint places and quaint practices, but the tip is worth considering for future generations of explorers and alpine climbers. Our homeward march continued for day after day, with no very exciting incidents. We met no more crevasses that were more than a foot or so wide, and we worked our way down on the great ice barrier with comparatively easy marches, although the distances we covered were surprising to all of us. Seventeen miles a day we averaged. On the 30th of January, Lashley and I had been fourteen weeks out, and we had exhausted practically every topic of conversation beyond food, distances made good, temperatures and the weather. Crean, as already set down, had started with the main southern party a week after Lashley and I had first set out as the pioneers with those wretched failures, the motor sledges. By this time I had made the unpleasant discovery that I was suffering from scurvy. It came on with a stiffening of the knee joints, then I could not straighten my legs, and finally they were horrible to behold, swollen, bruised and green. As day followed day, my condition became worse. My gums ulcerated, and my teeth became loose. Then finally I got a hemorrhage. Crean and Lashley were dreadfully concerned on my behalf, and how they nursed me and helped me along no words of mine can properly describe. What men they were! Those awful days. I trudged on with them for hundreds of miles, and each step hurt me more. I'd done too much on the outward journey, for what with building all the depot cairns ahead of the pony party, and what with the effects of the spring sledge journey, too much had been asked of me. I'd never been out of harness from the day I left Hut Point, for even with the motor sledges we practically pulled them along. Crean had had an easier time, for he had led a pony up to the foot of the Beardmore Glacier, and Lashley had not done the spring sledging journey which took a certain amount out of me, with its temperatures falling to 73 degrees below zero. The disappointment of not being included in the polar party had not helped me much, and I must admit that my prospects of winning through became duller day by day. I suffered absolute agonies in forcing my way along, and eventually I could only push myself by means of ski-stick, for I could not step out properly. I somehow waddled on ski until one day I fainted when striving to start a march. Keen and Lashley picked me up, and Crean thought I was dead. His hot tears fell on my face, and as I came to I gave a weak kind of laugh. They rigged the camp up once more, and put me in my bag, and then those two gallant fellows held a short council of war. 
I endeavoured to get them to leave me when they came in with their suggestions, but it was useless to argue with them, and I now felt that I had shot my bolt. I vainly tried to persuade them to leave me in my sleeping bag with what food they could spare, but they put me on the sledge, bag and all, and strapped me as comfortably as they could with their own sleeping bag spread under me to make for greater ease. How weary their marches must have been! Ten miles a foot slogging each day. I could see them from the sledge by raising my head. How slowly their legs seemed to move. Wearily, but noble, they fought on, until one day a blizzard came and completely spoiled the surface. The two men had been marching nearly 1,500 miles. Their strength was spent, and great though their hearts were, they had now to give up. In vain they tried to move the sledge with my wasted weight upon it. It was hopeless. Very seriously and sadly, they re-erected our tent and put me once again inside. I thought I was being put into my grave. Outside I heard them talking, low notes of sadness, but with a certain thread of determination running through what they said. They were discussing which should go and which should stay. Crean had done, if anything, the lighter share of the work as already explained, and he therefore set out to march thirty-five miles with no food, but with a few biscuits and a little stick of chocolate. He hoped to find relief at Hut Point. Failing this, he would go on, if possible, to Cape Evans. Crean came in to say goodbye to me. I thanked him for what he was doing in a weak, broken sort of way, and Lashley held open the little round tent door to let me see the last of him. He strode out nobly and finely. I wondered if I should ever see him again. Then Lashley came into me, shut the tent door, and made me a little porridge out of some oatmeal we got from the last depot we'd passed. After I'd eaten it, he made me comfortable by laying me on Crean's sleeping bag, which made my own seem softer, for I was very, very sore after being dragged a hundred miles on a jolting, jumping sledge. Then I slept, and awoke to find Lashley's kind face looking down at me. There were very few wounded men in the Great War nursed as I was by him. A couple of days passed, and every now and then Lashley would open up the tent door, go out, search the horizon for some possible sign of relief. The end had nearly come, and I was past caring. We had no food except a few paraffin-saturated biscuits, and Lashley in his weakened state without food could never have marched in. He took it all very quietly, a noble, still true man. But relief did come at the end of that day, when everything looked its blackest. We heard the baying of dogs first once, and then again. Lashley, who was lying down by my side quietly talking, sprang to his feet, looked out, and saw. They galloped right up to the tent, and the leader, a beautiful grey dog named Christa Vista, seemed to understand the situation, for he came right into the tent and licked my hands and face. I put my poor weak hands up and gripped his furry ears. Perhaps, to hide my feelings, I kissed his old hairy Siberian face with the kiss that was meant for Lashley. 
we were both dreadfully affected at our rescue. Atkinson and the Russian dog-boy, Dmitri, had come out hot-foot to save us, and of all men in the expedition none could have been better chosen than little H, our clever naval doctor. After resting his dogs and feeding me with carefully prepared foodstuffs, he got me on one sledge and Lashley on the other. The dogs were given their head, and in little more than three hours we covered the thirty-five miles into Hut Point, where I was glad to see Crean's face once more and to hear first-hand about his march. It had taken him eighteen hours plodding through those awful snows from our camp to Hut Point, where fortunately he met Atkinson and Dmitri and told them of my condition. After the expedition was over, the king gave Lashley and Crean the Albert Medal for their bravery in helping me win through. This is little enough tribute that I've dedicated this book to these two gallant fellows. And now it's time to do some dreaming. Then suddenly the clouds thinned and the stars shone spectrally above. All below was still black, but those pallid beacons in the sky seemed alive with a meaning and directness they'd never possessed elsewhere. It was not that the figures of the constellations were different, but that the same familiar shapes now revealed a significance they'd formerly failed to make plain. Everything focused towards the north. Every curve and asterism of the glittering sky became part of a vast design, whose function was to hurry first the eye, and then the whole observer onward to some secret and terrible goal of convergence beyond the frozen waste that stretched endlessly ahead. Carter looked towards the east, where the great ridge of the barrier peaks had towered along all the length of Iquinoch, and saw against the stars a jagged silhouette, which told of its continued presence. It was more broken now, with yawning clefts and fantastically erratic pinnacles, and Carter studied closely the suggestive turnings and inclinations of that grotesque outline, which seemed to share with the stars some subtle northward urge. They were flying past at a tremendous speed, so that the watcher had to strain hard to catch details, when all at once he beheld, just above the line of the topmost peaks, a dark and moving object against the stars, whose course exactly paralleled that of his own bizarre party. The ghouls had likewise glimpsed it, and he heard their low glibbering all about him, and for a moment he fancied the object was a gigantic shantak, of a size vastly greater than that of the average specimen. Soon, however, he saw that this theory would not hold, for the shape of the thing above the mountains was not that of any hypocellophallic bird. Its outline against the stars, necessarily vague as it was, resembled rather some huge mitred head, or a pair of heads infinitely magnified, and its rapid bobbing flight through the sky seemed most peculiar like a wingless one. Cutter could not tell which side of the mountains it was on, but soon perceived that it had parts below the parts he had first seen, since it blotted out all the stars in places where the ridge was deeply cleft. Then came a wide gap in the range, where the hideous reaches of the transmontane leng were joined to the cold waste on this side by a low pass, through which the stars shone wanly. Carter watched this gap with intense care, 
knowing that he might see outlined against the sky beyond it the lower parts of the vast thing that flew undulantly above the pinnacles. The object had now floated ahead a trifle, and every eye of the party was fixed on the rift where it would presently appear in full-length silhouette. Gradually the huge thing above the peaks neared the gap, slightly slackening its speed, as if conscious of having outdistanced the ghoulish army. For another minute suspense was keen, and then the brief instant of full silhouette and revelation came, bringing to the lips of the ghouls an awed and half-choked meep of cosmic fear, and to the soul of the traveller a chill that never wholly left it. For the mammoth-bobbing shape that overtopped the ridge was only a head, a mitred double head, and below it in terrible vastness loped the frightful swollen body that bore it. The mountain-high monstrosity that walked in stealth and silence, the hyena-like distortion of a gigantic anthropoid shape that trotted blackly against the sky, its repulsive pair of cone-capped heads reaching halfway to its zenith. Carter did not lose consciousness, or even scream aloud, for he was an old dreamer. But he looked behind him in horror, and shuddered when he saw that there were other monstrous heads silhouetted above the level of the peaks, bobbing along stealthily after the first one. And straight in the rear were three of the mighty mountain shapes seen full against the southern stars, tiptoeing wolf-like and lumberingly, their tall mitres nodding thousands of feet in the air. The carven mountains, then, had not stayed squatting in that rigid semicircle north of Iquanoc, with right hands uplifted. They had duties to perform, and were not remiss. But it was horrible that they never spoke, and never even made a sound in walking. Meanwhile, the ghoul that was Pickman had glibbered an order to the nightgaunts, and the whole army soared higher into the air. Up toward the stars, the grotesque column shot, till nothing stood out any longer against the sky, neither the grey granite ridge that was still nor the carven mighton mountains that walked. All was blackness beneath, as the fluttering legion surged northward amidst rushing winds and invisible laughter in the ether, and never a shantak or less mentionable entity rose from the haunted wastes to pursue them. The farther they went, the faster they flew, till soon their dizzying speed seemed to pass that of a rifle ball and approach that of a planet in its orbit. Carter wondered how with such speed the earth could still stretch beneath them, but knew that in the land of dream, dimensions have strange properties. That they were in a realm of eternal night he felt certain, and he fancied that the constellations overhead had subtly emphasised their northward focus, gathering themselves up, as it were, to cast the flying army into the void of the boreal pole as the folds of a bag are gathered up to cast out the last bits of substance therein. Then he noticed with terror that the wings of the night-gaunts were not flapping any more. The horned and faceless steeds had folded their membranous appendages and were resting quite passive in the chaos of wind that whirled and chuckled as it bore them on. A force not of earth had seized the army, and ghouls and night-gaunts alike were powerless before such a current which pulled madly and relentlessly into the north, whence no mortal had ever returned. At length, 
a lone pallid light was seen on the skyline ahead, thereafter rising steadily as they approached, and having beneath it a black mass that blotted out the stars. Cutter saw that it must be some beacon on a mountain, for only a mountain could rise so vast as seen from so prodigious a height in the air. Higher and higher rose the light, and the blackness beneath it, until all the northern sky was obscured by the rugged conical mass. Lofty as the army was, that pale and sinister beacon rose above it, towering monstrous over all the peaks and cornaments of earth, and tasting the atomless ether where the cryptical moon and the mad planets reel. No mountain known of man was that which loomed before them. The high clouds far above were but a fringe for its foothills. The groping dizziness of topmost air was but a girdle for its loins. Scornful and spectral climbed that bridge betwixt earth and heaven, black in eternal night, and crowned with a shent of unknown stars whose awful and significant outline grew every moment clearer. Ghouls meeped in wonder as they saw it, and Carter shivered in fear lest all the hurtling army be dashed to pieces on the unyielding onyx of that cyclopean cliff. Higher and higher rose the light, till it mingled with the loftiest orbs in the zenith, and winked down at the flyers with lurid mockery. All the north beneath it was blackness now, dread, stony blackness from infinite depths to infinite heights, with only that pale winking beacon perched unreachably at the top of all vision. Cutter studied the light more closely, and saw at last what lines its inky background made against the stars. There were towers on that titan mountain top, horrible domed towers in noxious and incalculable tears, and clusters, and beyond all dreamable workmanship of man. Battlements and terraces of wonder and menace, all limed tiny and black and distant against the starry shent that glowed malevolently at the uppermost rim of sight. Capping that most measureless of mountains was a castle beyond all mortal thought, and in it glowed a demon light. Then Randolph Carter knew that his quest was done, and that he saw above him the goal of all forbidden steps and audacious visions, the fabulous, the incredible home of the great ones atop unknown Kadath. Even as he realised this thing, Carter noticed a change in the course of the helpless wind-sucked party. They were rising abruptly now, and it was plain that the focus of their flight was the onyx castle, where the pale light shone. So close was the great black mountain that its sides sped by them dizzyingly as they shot upward, and in the darkness they could discern nothing upon it. Vaster and vaster loomed the tenebrous towers of the knighted castle above, and Carter could see that it was well-nigh blasphemous in its immensity. Well might its stones have been quarried by nameless workmen in that horrible gulf rent out of the rock in the hill pass north of Iquinoch, for such was its size, that a man on its threshold stood even as air out on the steps of earth's loftiest fortress. The shent of unknown stars above the myriad domed turrets glowed with a sallow sickly flare, so that a kind of twilight hung about the murky walls of slippery onyx. 
The pallid beacon was now seen to be a single shining window, high up in one of the loftiest towers. And as the helpless army neared the top of the mountain, Carter thought he detected unpleasant shadows flitting across the feebly luminous expanse. It was a strangely arched window, of a design wholly alien to earth. The solid rock now gave place to the giant foundations of the monstrous castle, and it seemed that the speed of the party was somewhat abated. Vast walls shot up, and there was a glimpse of a great gate through which the voyagers were swept. All was night in the Titan courtyard, and then came the deeper blackness of inmost things, as a huge arched portal engulfed the column. Vortices of cold wind surged dankly through the sightless labyrinths of onyx, and Carter could never tell what cyclopean stairs and corridors lay silent along the route of its endless aerial twisting. Always upward led the terrible plunge in darkness, and never a sound, a touch, or glimpse broke the dense pall of mystery. Large as the army of ghouls and nightgaunts was, it was lost in the prodigious voids of that more than earthly castle, and when at last there suddenly dawned around him the lurid light of that single tower-room, whose lofty window had served as a beacon, it took Carter long to discern the far walls and high distant ceiling, to realise that he was indeed not again in the boundless air outside. Randolph Carter had hoped to come into the throne room of the Great Ones with poise and dignity, flanked and followed by impressive lines of ghouls in ceremonial order, and offering his prayer as a free and potent master amongst dreamers. He'd known that the Great Ones themselves are not beyond a mortal's power to cope with, and had trusted to luck that the other gods and their crawling chaos Nyarlathotep would not happen to come to their aid at the crucial moment as they had so often done before men sought out Earth's gods in their home or on their mountains. And with his hideous escort, he had half hoped to defy even the other gods if need were, knowing as he did that ghouls have no masters, and that night-gaunts own not Nyarlathotep, but only archaic nodens for their lord. But now he saw that supernal Kadath in its cold waste, is indeed girt with dark wonders and nameless sentinels, and that the other gods are a surety vigilant in guarding the mild feeble gods of earth. Void as they are of lordship over ghouls and night-gaunts, the mindless, shapeless blasphemies of outer space can yet control them when they must. So that it was not in state as a free and potent master of dreamers that Randolph Carter came into the Great One's throne room, with his ghouls. Swept and herded by nightmare tempests from the stars, and dogged by unseen horrors of the northern waste, all that army floated captive and helpless in the lurid light, dropping numbly to the onyx floor when by some voiceless order the winds of fright dissolved. Before no golden dais had Randolph Carter come, nor was there any august circle of crowned and haloed beings with narrow eyes, long-lobed ears, thin nose and pointed chin, whose kinship to the carven face on Gran Eck might stamp them as those to whom a dreamer might pray. Save for the one-tower room, the onyx castle atop Kadath was dark, and the masters were not there. 
Carter had come to unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but he had not found the gods. Yet still the lurid light glowed in that one tower room whose size was so little less than that of all outdoors, and whose distant walls and roof were so nearly lost to sight in thin curling mists. Earth's gods were not there, it was true, but of subtler and less visible presences there could be no lack. Where the mild gods are absent, the other gods are not unrepresented, and certainly the onyx castle of castles was far from tenantless. In what outrageous form or forms terror would next reveal itself to Carter, he could by no means imagine. He felt that his visit had been expected, and wondered how close a watch had all along been kept upon him by the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. It is Nyarlathotep, horror of infinite shapes and dread soul, and messenger of the other gods, that the fungus moonbeasts serve, and Carter thought of the black galley that had vanished when the tide of battle turned against the toad-like abnormalities on the jagged rock in the sea. Reflecting upon these things, he was staggering to his feet in the midst of his nightmare company, when there rang without warning through that pale-litten and limitless chamber the hideous blast of a daemon trumpet. Three times pealed that frightful brazen scream, and when the echoes of the third blast had died chucklingly away, Randolph Carter saw that he was alone. Whither, why and how the ghouls and night-gaunts had been snatched from sight was not for him to divine. He knew only that he was suddenly alone, and that whatever unseen powers lurked mockingly around him were no powers of Earth's friendly dreamland. Presently, from the chamber's utmost reaches, a new sound came. This, too, was a rhythmic trumpeting, but of a kind far removed from the three raucous blasts which had dissolved his goodly cohorts. In this low fanfare echoed all the wonder and melody of ethereal dream, exotic vistas of unimagined loveliness floating from each strange chord and subtle alien cadence. Odours of incense came to match the golden notes. And overhead, a great light dawned, its colours changing in cycles unknown to Earth's spectrum, and following the song of the trumpets in weird symphonic harmonies. Torches flared in the distance, and the beat of drums throbbed nearer amidst the waves of tense expectancy. Out of the thinning mists and the cloud of strange incenses filed twin columns of giant black slaves with loincloths of iridescent silk. Upon their heads were strapped vast helmet-like torches of glittering metal, from which the fragrance of obscure balsam spread in fumous spirals. In their right hands were crystal wands, whose tips were carven into leering chimeras, while their left hands grasped long, thin silver trumpets, which they blew in turn. Armlets and anklets of gold they had, and between each pair of anklets stretched a chain of gold that held its wearer to a sober gait. That they were true black men of Earth's dreamland was at once apparent, but it seemed less likely that their rites and costumes were wholly things of Earth. Ten feet from Carter, the columns stopped, 
and as they did so, each trumpet flew abruptly to its bearer's thick lips. Wild and ecstatic was the blast that followed, and wilder still the cry that chorus just after from dark throats made somehow shrill by strange artifice. Then down the wide lane, betwixt the two columns, a lone figure strode. A tall, slim figure, with a young face of an antique pharaoh, gay with prismatic robes, and crowned with golden shent that glowed with an inherent light. Close up to Carter strode that regal figure, whose proud carriage and smart features had in them the fascination of a dark god or fallen archangel, and around whose eyes there lurked the languid sparkle of capricious humour. It spoke, and its mellow tones there rippled the wild music of Lethian streams. Randolph Carter, said the voice, you've come to see the great ones whom it is unlawful for men to see. Watchers have spoken of this thing, and the other gods have grunted as they rolled and tumbled mindlessly to the sound of thin flutes in the black ultimate void, where broods the daemon sultan, whose name no lips dare speak aloud. And that's all for today except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books as I record them. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the war in Vietnam. I'm also currently rushing a recording of the recent US government report known as the Durham Report, covering the bad behaviour of the FBI during its 2016 investigation of President Trump. Please go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.